Well, good morning. Is it raining at your house? It's raining at our house. It's good to have the rain. Uh, and, and we'll have it until uh, we start complaining about it again. I'm sure that that's the, uh, that's the way it goes with the seasons here in the Ozarks. It's good to be back. I think you know that I've been uh, in the Philippines and Singapore and Malaysia over the last uh, few uh, couple of weeks that I was gone there. But uh, God did some really good things on the trip and arranged for me to have uh, COVID by the end of the trip. And so uh, I hope that I went past the quarantine period, and that's why I'm up here. Uh, uh, we're just going to ask God to give me the opportunity to use COVID brain as an excuse halfway through this message. That's all I'm going to be doing. I, I don't know about this COVID brain thing. Anyway, um, this morning we'll be continuing our studies in, in Paul's first letter to Timothy in a series entitled... Be Strong in Grace, and this is part 30, and entitled, The Dance of the Diligent, and we'll be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 15 to 16, and I suspect by now that I've said enough to have some of you worried. I can hear you saying, oh, oh he's he going to talk about dancing again, and you're saying that because you can remember a message that I brought a, a, a few weeks back entitled, Dancing with deacons, some of you still remember that. In that message, I proved, I think, that I know a thing or two about deacons, but I also proved that I know absolutely nothing about dancing. That may be the case, but for those of you who are quietly worrying that he's going to talk about dancing again, I can tell you right now, you ain't seen nothing yet. And it's my hope, by the end of the message, you'll understand why I would say that. In the meantime, you may have noticed that we've begun a tradition around here at Potter's House that uh, has us greeting one another before the message. I guess it's in an effort to, to make sure that I stay awake as I try to manage all that. But take a minute, say hello to somebody that's near you. Just You can stand up and, yeah, just, just go for it. Take your time before you sit down. Say hello. Some of you are in wander mode and... Going somewhere else. All right, all right, that's enough. That's, that's, that's enough. Oh, the lights are going down. You better sit down. It's, it's great to be able to be here together, to be here as a family, to take time in God's Word and... Uh, I'm glad that you had the opportunity to say hello. I hope you met somebody, perhaps, that you hadn't met before. Last week, Brian walked us through verses 11 to 14 of chapter 4 of 1 Timothy, where Paul insists that Timothy take all the stuff that he's been writing to him and prescribe and teach it all to other people. Paul knew that Timothy was teaching others, and he wanted to be, he wanted to be sure that Timothy was teaching the truth when he had the opportunity to speak to other people, either in private or, or publicly. And that sentiment that Paul expressed in the verses from last week was a foreshadowing of what he'll write to Timothy in his second letter to Timothy, something that we'll be studying next year. 2 Timothy 2, 1-2, Paul says, You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses and trust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. 
Paul taught Timothy, and then Paul told Timothy to teach other people the things that he had taught him. Then when Timothy had passed Paul's teaching to others, Paul wanted Timothy to tell those other people to teach those things to even more people. In other words, Paul gave the truth to Timothy, and then once Timothy had received the truth from Paul, Paul wanted Timothy to own the truth that Paul had given him. And the reason that Paul wanted Timothy to own the truth that he gave him was so that Timothy could give that same truth to others. And Paul knew that you can't give to others what you yourself do not own. And I know what you're thinking, that the government does that all the time, but we didn't come here to talk about that this morning. From Paul to Timothy, from Timothy to others, and then from those others to others still. Four generations is what Paul will describe in his next letter to Timothy. Last week, Brian pointed out that Paul actually commanded Timothy to command other people to get with this program of learning God's word and then passing God's word along to other people so that they could learn God's word and then those other people could pass that along to still others. Meanwhile, Paul was, was planning to continue learning so that he could pass more things along to Timothy who would continue to learn more things so that Timothy could, well, by now, you get the pattern. You understand what Paul was about. Paul's describing a food chain here where instead of consuming each other, we actually feed each other. In truth, he's describing what we now call discipleship. That's the big fancy Christian word for it these days, but that's what Paul is describing. There's a lot more that will come from this very idea in the weeks and months ahead. <coughs> Excuse me. But for now, I want to say that Brian was spot on when he, with the emphatic way that he pointed out to us that Paul commanded Timothy and, and, and told Timothy to command others to teach and learn God's word. Of course, Brian, as Brian pointed out, some of us really do bristle when we hear the word command. After all, we're Americans and ain't nobody going to tell us what to do, right? I mean, it's right there. And, and when we, he had us all bristling about this command thing, he used an interesting strategy, an interesting technique to get us all to calm down. He taught us some grammar. That was, that was great, you know, because everybody knows that, you know, diffusing us with grammar was true genius because a spoonful of grammar makes the medicine goes down, right? I mean, I think that's what you were after. But I hope that you stopped bristling when, when Brian began to talk about the command thing and explain it to us. When he started talking about grammar, I hope you stopped bristling because what he had to say about grammar really did help me to understand what Paul was talking about. You see, Paul commanded Timothy to command others, but Paul's command and Timothy's command were both indicative commands. And I love indicative commands because indicative commands are not telling us to do something that we are not. They're not telling us to be something that we are not. Indicative commands, in fact, are just the opposite. Indicative commands tell us to just go ahead and be who we really are in a just-be-yourself kind of a way. That's sometimes the best advice that we can give to other people when they're nervous about what's about to go down, but that's really what Paul told Timothy. Picture it this way. You gather 10 five-year-olds, which would be a very courageous thing in any event, but, but you gather 10 five-year-olds, and then you lead them to a room that is filled with cool toys. And then in your best indicative command voice, you say, now, children, play. I, I don't know how that got to be the indicative command voice, but, but that's what you say. Now, children, play. 
You don't need an indicative command voice to get children to play with toys. You don't. They're going to play with the toys unless you've led them to that room planning to tell them not to play with the toys. And if your plan was to lead those five-year-olds to that room to tell them not to play, not to play with the toys, then I expect within the first five minutes or so you'll be changing your plan. Children play with toys because that's what children do. So you can exercise great confidence as you command them to play with the toys because that's what children do. They play with toys. And having said all that, you're probably able to see by now why they pay me the big bucks to do this thing up here because I know stuff like children play with toys. Of course, adults play with toys too, but it's just that their toys are bigger and more expensive, but we didn't come here to talk about that either. But really... That's what an indicative command is. When you tell someone to do something that that you know they're naturally inclined to do anyway, that's an indicative command. Any grammarian worth their salt would want to sit me down right now and explain a few things to me about indicative commands because there there really is much more to it than, than I've just indicated, but for the grammarians in the room, I hope you'll take this in the spirit that that it's intended. And we should point out that not all of the commands there in, in that list of commands to Timothy, not all of them are in the indicative mood. But Paul does sum up the whole thing by saying to, to Timothy that in doing this, doing this, there's an indicative command, doing this you will save both yourself and those who hear you teach. In other words, Paul assumes that Timothy will do what he's telling him to do. And based on that assumption, Paul is confident of an exceptionally good outcome from Timothy's life. And parenthetically here, I have to wonder if Paul would have written the same thing to me that he wrote to Timothy. Would Paul's personal knowledge of me indicate to him that I would have a good outcome to my life because he knew that I would study God's Word? And at the risk of being too personal, would Paul make the same assumption about you. All that to say that the indicative mood really isn't that complicated because I know that you've used the word indicative in other contexts. Indicative comes from the word, well, indicate, as in this indicates that. The fact that the group was so willing to play with the toys was indicative of the fact that they were all five years old. Indicative. I'm sure you've used it that way at one time or another. If, if not, I give you my permission to do that. But I just think it's so important that we understand this. Paul is not commanding us to do things that we are not prone to do. Instead, Paul is commanding us to do things that we are naturally inclined to do. Now, I use that word naturally, but I hope that you know that I'm not talking about the old nature. I'm talking about the new nature, the Spirit of God that's within us. What it comes down to is this. Because the Spirit of God is living within me, I am naturally inclined to spend time in God's Word, to spend time studying God's Word. And I'm actually going to have to distract myself from that to to press on to, to pursue something else because I'm naturally inclined to do that. I'm naturally inclined to make time to study God's Word. I'm naturally inclined to share what I've learned from God's Word with other people. It's just part of the way the new me is made up. And that plays into another thing that Brian reminded us about last week. Make sure that you give people reasons to look up to you instead of giving people reasons to look down 
on you. In other words, make sure that you practice what you preach. Make sure that you give priority to God's word. Make sure that you treasure and put to use the gift that the Spirit of God has given you. And make sure that that you serve in the way that God the Father has designed you to serve. Make sure that you are constantly setting an example that others can follow. And as we bring this review to to a close, there's one more thing that needs to be said. Bring the book! Bring the book! Bring the book! Okay, maybe there's two more things that need to be said, but uh, we didn't exactly start a riot there, but I, I do sort of think we could have been just a touch more enthusiastic with our war chant there, don't you? And I know you, you want me to, I'm not giving you another chance on that one. Now that, maybe next week, we'll see. But remember, Brian was trying to help us to understand that we should expect to hear from God on a Sunday morning. And because of that, we should show up here with the enthusiasm to insist of whoever stands up here that he bring the book. That you make sure that whoever stands up here comes up here with that goal of bringing the book to you. And that question about enthusiasm is an important one because of where we're going to be going this morning. But we're never going to get where we're going if we don't start in that direction and we always start going on a Sunday morning by reading the passage together. So if you would, stand with me as we read aloud together from 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Thanks. You can take your seats, thankful that God shows us his truth when we read his word. The story that I want to tell you this morning comes from the Old Testament, recounts something for us that that happened during the time when David was the king of Israel. As the story begins, David is living as king in the city of Jerusalem, but that's a very recent thing. That's because Saul, who was king before David, has only recently died, and even more recently, David has become king in his place. In the interim, the Jebusites took over the city of Jerusalem and made it loud and clear, a real point of the fact that there was no way that David was ever getting back into the city of Jerusalem. David took the city of Jerusalem back from the Jebusites, and one of the things, first things that, that people encouraged David to do was to build a palace there for himself and for future kings. David did that, and then he began to be concerned about the Ark of the Covenant, which was not in Jerusalem. It's a long story, but the Ark had been in the, had been in the old tabernacle, but Israel had done something stupid and lost the Ark of the Covenant for a time. God had recovered the Ark of the Covenant for them, but they had been unsure of what to do with the Ark after they got it back. They kept it in storage, sort of, but now David was living in Jerusalem, and, and now he wanted the Ark, to, uh, the Ark of the Covenant to be nearby. His plan was to, reassemble, was to reassemble all the components of the old tabernacle so that he could build a temple there in the city of Jerusalem. He's not going to get to do that, but he will be able to reassemble all of the parts during the course of his lifetime. And the first step in that process, of course, was to get the Ark of the Covenant in place. And that meant moving the Ark. 
Now, the ark was the most important part of the tabernacle because the cover of the ark was the mercy seat where God himself had chosen to dwell among his people. Now, David knew that God had given special instructions about how to move the ark from one place to the other. The ark was supposed to be carried on the shoulders of priests on rods that they passed through the rings that were on the outside of the ark. But for some reason, David will decide to use an ox cart to get the job done. <coughs> and he'll run into a pretty significant snag along the way. And, well, I don't want to get ahead of myself. So with that background, this is the story from God's Word from 2 Samuel chapter 6. David sent word to all the young warriors that surrounded him, about 30,000 young men, and he asked them all to convene there in Jerusalem, and they all showed up. And he and all of his men went together to where the Ark of the Covenant was being stored, and they made preparations to move this very sacred object that bore the name and presence of Yahweh. They set the Ark of the Covenant on a new ox cart and began their journey. A man named Abinadab had been taking care of the Ark, and Ahio and Uzzah, two of Abinadab's sons, took charge of the ox cart as it made its way to Jerusalem. David and all of Israel were in full contact worship mode and were celebrating before the Lord with all their might. There were sacrifices and music and, and high spirits and even dancing as Israel celebrated this moment of victory. After a while, they passed by the threshing floor of a man named Nakon, and as they traversed the uneven ground there, one of the oxen stumbled, and it looked as though the Ark of the Covenant might fall off of the ark, ox cart onto the ground and crash onto the ground. Abinadab's son, Uzzah, instinctively reached out and grabbed the ark to steady it so that it wouldn't fall off the cart. But remember, the ark was supposed to be carried by priests on poles that the priest had inserted into the golden rings on the side of the ark. Because listen to me, no one, no one was ever allowed to touch the ark. We're not sure that Uzzah knew that, that he wasn't supposed to touch the ark, but that doesn't really matter at this point in the story because Uzzah had done something that no one was supposed to do and God immediately reacted. In fact, God struck Uzzah dead for his irreverence in touching the ark to steady it. Uzzah fell down dead right there by the threshing floor, right beside the Ark of the Covenant. And needless to say, the procession, the celebration, the festivities immediately stopped. David was ticked. He was angry at God for what he did to Uzzah. And fearful that something like that could happen again, David abandoned his plan right then and there to bring the Ark to Jerusalem. David took the Ark to a nearby house and left it there for three months while he came up with another plan. And at the end of three months, David and his men went back to where the ark was, and this time they took the priests with them, with the idea that the priests would use the poles to carry the ark. David punctuated the journey by sacrificing a bull and a fattened calf, and then he took off his outer garments, and wearing a sort of linen apron, a, a, an ephod, David began to dance before the Lord with all his might. They soon entered the, the gates of the city of Jerusalem and David danced the ark all the way to the tent that he had prepared for it. David then offered sacrifices and gave gifts to those that had been involved, uh, to the people that were gathered there, and then he went home to bless his family. Turns out that when David got home, his wife Michael 
started busting his chops because she despised David for the way he was leaping and dancing before the Lord as the ark was being brought into Jerusalem. She wasn't in the habit of keeping things to herself, so she went right after David as though she had the right to accept or reject the worship that David had offered to God. How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, she said. You went around half naked and you danced and you embarrassed yourself. You made a fool of yourself in front of everyone in Israel. You were ridiculous today. David quietly took it all in and then said, You ain't seen nothing yet. I didn't dance with all my might in front of Israel or in front of you. I danced with all my might in front of the Lord who chose me to be the ruler of his people, Israel. And know this, the next time I have a chance to worship the Lord, I will be even more undignified than I was today because I don't care about humiliating myself. I only care about magnifying the Lord. David then explained that it may be that his wife despised him, but that his choice to worship with enthusiasm would be honored by the people of Israel. And that's the story from God's word. Go Chiefs! Whew, tough crowd this morning, Brian. I have to say that's not the response that I expected when I shouted that, but, but maybe I should have prefaced that shout by, uh, I don't know, a little bit of context. You see, I'm a natural-born fan of the New England Patriots. Well, there you go. See, I don't know. This is really upside down this morning. But anyway, I was born in Brookline, Massachusetts, the same town where John F. Kennedy was born, and right next to the towns where John Adams and Sam Adams, John Hancock, and Ben Franklin were born. All patriots there, right? I grew up in northeastern Massachusetts, right up near the New Hampshire line. So I'm an honest, natural-born fan of the patriots. And I've been a fan of the patriots since they were the Boston Patriots, and, and since before the year, they were 1 in 15. I mean, there, there were some pretty dark years back there. Since my childhood, I've lived in a lot of places in this old world, but most recently, I've lived right here in the Ozarks, and because I'm a transplant, I can say that I fondly remember the days when the Chiefs and the Patriots were true rivals. We had a lot of fun back then. You remember that. It would often happen on a Sunday morning as I would sometimes have to eat humble pie when the Chiefs beat the Patriots. 41 to 14 one time. I remember that very, very clearly. Of course, back then, there were far more times when I would have to apologize to you for what the Patriots had done to the Chiefs. Work with me now. Hey, just... Having said that, I have to add that back then, the Patriots may have been a better team than the Chiefs, But listen to me, Patriots fans have never been better fans than the fans of the Chiefs have been. You guys rock at being fans. (laughs) Hey, you had your turn. You had your chance, I'm just saying. I mean, it's not the acoustics that make Arrowhead Stadium the loudest stadium in the NFL. It's the fans. Your volume is unparalleled because in my opinion, Your enthusiasm is unparalleled, so let me try that again. Go Chiefs! Okay, well, that's better. There's a video that I want you to watch, and I hope that you're not going to be offended by it. I I feel like I need to say that. 
It has Richard Gere in it, and you men may already be offended by that. While you ladies may prefer to, to just kind of wait and see if he does something offensive. In any event, without much context, listen to the song that's going on behind it. As, try not to be too distracted by the other stuff that's going on, but listen to the song and let's watch the video. of the Lord comes upon my heart I will dance like David danced when the spirit of the Lord comes upon my heart I will dance like David danced I will dance I will dance Like David danced, I will dance, I will dance, I will dance like David danced. Let the earth rejoice, let the nations say the Lord reigns. Let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice. 
I don't think we can even begin to appreciate how momentous that moment was. The Ark. The Ark of the Covenant. So long gone from the city of Jerusalem. Has found its way back home. And David has responded by quoting a scripture. Dancing before the Lord with all his might. I hope you weren't offended by my choice of that video, but if you were, perhaps a little further context, a little further explanation will help. You see, I, I YouTubed David dancing before the Lord with all his might, and I wasn't surprised to discover that I'm not the first preacher who has ever talked about that moment in David's life. I was a bit surprised, however, to see that some of the preachers who talked about that moment in David's life actually took it upon themselves to show how David danced before the Lord with all his might. And some of them also asked the congregation to just kind of join in and dance along. And I thought about that possibility for a minute, and, and then I went back and watched the Richard Gere video again, and I asked myself, would the folks at Potter's house be more offended by watching Richard Gere demonstrate da David's dance moves or by watching me demonstrate David's dance moves? And, uh, well, when I put the question to myself like that, <laughs> I realize it's, it's a no-brainer. I'm just going to show the video. I mean, the mere fact, the mere suggestion that I considered showing you, uh, demonstrating David's dance moves myself, will have most of you trying to poke out your mind's eye later to this afternoon. In any event, I, I didn't think it would offend you because I've watched plenty of Chiefs games, and you can't watch a Chiefs game without seeing a whole bunch of things that are sillier than that video. Go, Chiefs! There you go. What I'm trying to say is, is, is if I offended you with that video, I, I truly am sorry. And if I didn't offend you, uh, just give me some time. I'll get around to offending you sooner or later. Having said all of that, I have to add that the video is lacking something. It's lacking the conversation that Michael had with David, had with her husband, after the now infamous dancing event. David's wife, Michael, was definitely was offended by David's dancing. You remember that Michael busted David's chops for not being self-conscious about his worship style, right? David, in the meantime, took a completely different tack and says that, in essence, self-consciousness has no place and nothing to do with worship. And David is right. Worship is, the, in fact, the opposite of self-consciousness. Worship is God-consciousness. So if you're, if you're self-conscious while you're worshiping, you're not really worshiping. Seems to me that true worship and self-consciousness are mutually exclusive. They, they cancel one another out. God is so immense and overwhelming that once you become conscious of the presence of God in the room, there's no longer need for you to be self-conscious. There's no longer room for you to be conscious of yourself. Think about the cheese heads in, in Green Bay. <laughs> Those cheese hats that they wear should make them feel self-conscious, I think. Because those hats look stupid to everybody except the Green Bay fans that wear them. To the Green Bay fans that wear them, they are a badge of honor because they recognize something more. Fans are enthusiastic and not selfish at all because at the moment they're cheering for their team, they're living for something bigger than themselves. At the moment they're cheering for their team, they're living for something bigger than themselves, and that's why they're not self-conscious. Go Chiefs! <laughs> there it is again. So, let's, let me try something else here. Go Pats! Oh, I don't know. 
See, I was going to say that the Chiefs fans were louder than the Pats fans, but well, that will. But do you see what happened there? I, I, I saw some of you make a, a serious decision when I said, go Pats. When I shouted, go Chiefs, you agreed with me wholeheartedly, right? But when I shouted, go Pats, you became immediately self-conscious. And you reminded yourself that you are not a Patriots fan. You are not someone who is inclined to cheer for the Patriots. Of course, by now that we figured out which team is the best team and which fans are the greatest, we're left with a question. What does that have to do with anything at all? That's, that's a good question. I'm glad you asked it because, well, I have no idea. COVID brain and all. I only got this far in the message. And uh, No, no, really, truly. Um, I, Paul actually is going to say some stuff here that makes it sound, listen to me, Paul's going to say some stuff that makes it sound like our enthusiasm for our favorite team should not really be that different from our enthusiasm for God and God's Word. Let's take a moment to remember the context of the passage that we're looking at this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 11 to 14 says, Command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, but set an example. For the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Do not neglect the gift which was given you through, the prof- through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Paul's told Timothy not to let anyone look down on him because he's young. And then Paul adds that Timothy can keep people from looking down on him by being careful to set an example that would cause them to look up to him. Paul then adds that Timothy should devote himself to reading, preaching, and teaching God's word, and that he should, re- he should treasure the gift that has been given to him to make it possible for him to make a difference in the lives of others. I'm not sure we, we ever fully appreciate how powerful that gift is that God has given us. All those things constitute what Timothy should do. But they don't help him to know how or why he should do him do them. Thankfully, Paul has supplied for us both the how and the why in this passage for this morning. Hey, do you remember when Brian first began uh, talking to us about the idea of training ourselves to be godly? This is weeks ago. He told us that training ourselves to be godly begins with nourishing ourselves daily from God's word. Back then, he told us that the best way to get to the point where we're, making, where we're actually nourishing ourselves with God's word daily, the best way to do that is to make a plan. That's what he said. <coughs> I followed that up by trying to help us understand that what Brian had said was absolutely trustworthy and deserved our full acceptance. And then I added that the best way to get to the place where we're daily using God's word to train ourselves to be godly was to make a plan. And then last week, Brian told us that we should be in the habit of being devoted to reading, preaching, and teaching God's Word. And in that context last week, he said that the best way to get to the point where we're showing that kind of devotion to God's Word is to make a plan. Now, by now, you may have already caught onto the pattern, but in case you haven't, we've been encouraging you to make a plan. In fact, I can confess to you this morning that weeks ago, literally weeks ago, Brian and I got together and made a plan to encourage you to make a plan. I admit to that, and you can talk to Brian about that because 
I have no idea whose idea it was, but that we, we, may, we had that conversation. And having said all of that, I bet you can guess what my next question is going to be. Have you made a plan? Have you made a plan? I mean, I mean, is there something in place in your life now that wasn't there before? Have you made a plan to actually accomplish this? Have you made a plan that has you making time daily to read, study, memorize, meditate on, and share God's word with other people? I'm sure that some of you here this morning would be able to say, yes, I made a plan, and I'm sticking to it, but I wouldn't want to try to guess what percentage of us could say that we've done that. I wouldn't want to try to guess how many of us have made a plan, but for those of us who have a plan and those of us who have no plan, I want us to look at verse 15 from the passage for this morning. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. When I read verse 15, I can't help but picture David dancing the ark through the city of Jerusalem. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. David got down. He danced diligently, which may remind you of the title for this morning, The Dance of the Diligent. David got down. He danced before the Lord with all his might. He gave himself wholly to what he had planned for that morning. And yeah, I do believe that David planned to dance the ark into Jerusalem. I really do. I say that he planned to dance the ark into Jerusalem because of what he said to his wife when she told him that he had humiliated himself with his style of worship. You remember what he said? You think that was humiliating? <laughs> you, you ain't seen nothing yet. I think David was already planning his next foray into adventure worship. I don't know. I don't know how the guy worked it all out. But I believe that's the case. Go Chiefs! Ah, you know, one thing i got to say about David is that he was enthusiastic when it came to God's Word. David was enthusiastic when it came to worship. And I'm wondering what might happen here at Potter's House if we were to translate our enthusiasm for our favorite sports teams into an equal amount and to a, an equal quality of enthusiasm for God's Word and for worship. I wonder what would happen if we were to do that. Well, I hope that doesn't happen. But, but, but do you see what I did there in, 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 in that bit? I didn't ask you to be less enthusiastic about the Chiefs. Aren't you proud of me? I didn't ask you to be less enthusiastic about the Chiefs. I asked you to be just as enthusiastic about the things of God. You see, I talk to a lot of people who say that they can't make time to study God's Word. But I haven't talked to many people at all who say that they can't make time to watch the Chiefs. I, I, I haven't talked to many people at, at all who can't make time for their favorite sport, can't make time to browse social media, to watch TV, to read books, to pursue their hobbies. I haven't talked to many people like that at all. And this morning, I'm not asking you to stop making time for all that other stuff. I'm asking you to start making time for God's Word and for worship. You do a diligent dance when it comes time to make time for your hobbies and interests. And I'm asking you to do the same diligent dance when it comes time to make time for God's Word and worship. But in order to get there, in order to form that new habit, you got to make a plan. Paul knew Timothy well. 
And he was expecting Timothy to make great progress in giving people reasons to look up to him, in reading, preaching, and teaching God's word, and in treasuring the gift that had been given to him, and, and, and to make it possible to make a difference in the lives of others. Those are all things we've talked about in the last few weeks. Paul knew Timothy well, and he knew that Timothy was inclined to do all of those things and more, but Paul also knew that being inclined to do all those things and actually doing all those things are two different things. Timothy needed a plan, and he needed to be diligent and to give himself wholly to his plan if he expected his plan to become a reality in his life. It's that simple. And when you make a plan and then diligently stick to that plan, that's when people are going to be able to observe the progress that you're making in your life from one day to the next. Go Chiefs! What I'm trying to say is that it's high time that we grow some enthusiasm and show some enthusiasm for the things of God. At least as much enthusiasm as, we're, as we show for other, our other favorite things. I mean, the Chiefs are awesome, and social media is great, and, uh, but our God is wild and wonderful. He really is. He's wild and wonderful, and he deserves to have wild and wonderful people like us Worshiping him, responding to him in wild and wonderful ways. And to get, and to get there, I think we might need a plan. Now, <laughs> have I mentioned that? COVID fog, you know. You know, I was, I was meeting with the elders a few weeks ago on a Wednesday morning, and during that meeting, I watched them actually make a plan for spending more time studying God's Word on their own so that they could talk about God's Word together during their Wednesday morning meeting. Now, I was gone for the last three Wednesdays, so I don't know how they're doing with, uh, with implementing that plan, but at least they made the plan. Hey, you could ask them what their plan is and how they're doing on implementing that plan, uh, and, you know, getting into God's Word and discussing God's Word. Uh, you can ask them because a little bit of accountability never hurt anyone, not even the elders. All right, so far... Paul has told us that we should nourish ourselves in God's word daily and train ourselves to be godly. He's told us that we should set an example that others can follow, that we should talk, act, love, believe, and live in ways that they can emulate, imitate, and follow. Paul has told us that we should give attention to reading, devote ourselves to reading, preaching, and teaching God's word, and we should treasure the spiritual gifts that God has given us. And all of those things are the what of 1 Timothy chapter 4. Then Paul said that we should be diligent and give ourselves wholly to these truths so that everyone can see our progress in the things of God. And those things are the how of 1 Timothy chapter 4. And that's really all that's really left for us now is the why. Why would we show so much enthusiasm and devotion to God and God's word? Listen to me. Why would we do the dance so diligently when we, in theory, could get by just coming to church once a week and listening to a 40-minute message. Why should we make so much effort to make sure that our lives line up with what we believe when it's so much easier to just fake it until you make it? Why? Well, the answer to those questions, the why, have everything to do with the little ones in our lives. I wonder today if you have any idea how many people there are who watch the way you do life. 
as they try to figure out how they should do life. Dad, I wonder if you realize how much your children learn about God, the Father, by watching you live. I've said it from the pulpit here, but I'll repeat it this morning. Dad, do you realize that when your little one bows his or her head and says, Father, he or she, your little one, assumes that God the Father is someone very much like you. The primary truths that your child learns about God the Father are not learned in Sunday school or in family devotions. They're learned by watching you as you make the invisible God tangible to them. And the more powerfully you illustrate God to them, the more solid and sustaining their faith will be for them as they grow. And that means that when you decide to get serious about the things of God, when you decide to, get more, to become more enthusiastic about God's word and worship, when you do the dance of the diligent as you continue uh, to press into being a good example for everyone you know, the more you do those things, the more likely it is that your child will grow up to be complete, whole, healthy, solid, sound, and pure. Or as Paul would put it, the more you persevere in the things of God, the more you can be certain that you will be saved along with your children and grandchildren. Look at what he says in verse 16. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them. Because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. I know that it says our hearers will be saved, and we can apply that to just ministry, or we can recognize that over the years, listen to me, no one listens to us or watches our lives more closely than our children. John Moore wrote a song that put it this way. We're pilgrims on the journey of the narrow road, and those who've gone before us line the way. Cheering on the faithful, encouraging the weary, their lives a stirring testament to God's sustaining grace. Surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run the race, not only for the prize, but as those who've gone before us, let us leave to those behind us the heritage of faithfulness passed on through godly lives. And after all, our hopes and dreams have come and gone, and our children sift through all we've left behind. May the clues that they discover and the memories they uncover become the light that leads them to the road we each must find. May all who come behind us find us faithful. May the fire of our devotion light their way. May the footprints that we leave lead them to believe and the lives we live inspire them to obey. Oh, may all who come behind us find us faithful. Hey, go make a plan. Go make a plan. Put it into action and stick to it. Don't drop the ball with your kids and others who are following you. In closing, let me read the passage to you one more time. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them 
Because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Will you stand with me in the presence? Father and our God, we thank you so much for the faithfulness the Lord Jesus showed to the to the people of his day and to us still now. Thank you that he continued to press on. Thank you that he came here to do your will, Father, and to finish your work. And that the moment finally came when he was able, with his arms outstretched, to say, It is finished. And then commend himself, his life, into your hands. God, we pray that you'd give us that same diligence, that same passion that you would help us to remember that there are others who are watching us, particularly little ones. God, they're watching us, trying to see you, Father. So God, we pray you'd motivate us and that you'd send us out. And that as we go out, we would set an example for everyone we talk to, that we would make the invisible God tangible to them by your grace for their good, We ask these things in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen and amen. Well, we're headed out that door, and I don't know what else you got from this message, but let me try this. Go, Chiefs. Go get them, Potter's House.